0: Hi. Welcome to the Tax Chick Podcast. I am your host, Amanda Duset, a self-proclaimed booty, spin class, and Pilates enthusiast, and a tax lawyer. I fell into the practice of tax law despite having a lifelong hatred of spreadsheets, math, and numbers in general. Tax is complex, but it does not always have to be so complicated and shrouded in mystery. Join me and my guests as we unpack some serious tax topics and attempt to demystify the world of tax. Today, my guest is Stephen Flynn, and Stephen is a Canadian and U.S. CPA and a partner with Anderson Tax, which is a global tax and legal advisory firm. Stephen has spent his career in tax and works with individuals and businesses, assisting them with their U.S. and Canadian cross-border tax needs. With offices in Calgary and Vancouver, Anderson focused solely on U.S. and Canadian cross-border tax strategies and solutions. And I will put more information on how to connect with Stephen in the show notes. So Stephen, welcome to the podcast today. I'm really excited to have you.
1: Amanda, happy to be here. Thanks uh, for having me.
0: And what I think is kind of neat about you is, is you've got some connections to Saskatchewan. You You grew up in this province.
1: I've got a lot of connections to Saskatchewan. I was uh, born and raised in Regina. I went to elementary and high school there. My family was originally, uh, both my parents were from Saskatchewan. My father grew up in Regina. My my mom grew up on a farm in the southeast corner of the province in Arcola, Saskatchewan. I stayed in the province uh, for a few years after high school. I went to university in Saskatoon, the University of Saskatchewan, and graduated from uh, the college, was then called the College of Commerce. And moved out to Vancouver, kind of shortly after that to take a position with a with a firm here. Thought I would get back to Saskatchewan at some point in my life, but things change and life moves on. And you know, this many years later, I'm, I'm in Vancouver and, and really enjoying it here.
0: Well, I must have sensed your Saskatchewan roots because I think I just approached you on LinkedIn because there was something about the way you were posting that that seemed to me like. you you sort of spoke the same language I did. I must have sensed that Saskatchewan connection.
1: (laughs) Well, I think there is always kind of a a way about people from the prairies, in particular Saskatchewan. You know, I think what you may have discovered is I, uh, my daughter, our whole family, I've kind of rediscovered Jeopardy uh, since Alex Trebek passed away. And and once in a while on LinkedIn, I'll post uh, questions and there happened to be an actual category on taxes and, you know, Tax people like Gus get pretty excited about stuff like that. But there was also a couple of categories on uh, Moose Jaw and Saskatchewan and other prairie cities. So, you yeah, know, it's always interesting to kind of see where that goes.
0: I do enjoy your Jeopardy posts. I, I feel like you post on topics that I actually know the answer to because most of the time I watch Jeopardy and I'm useless. But you always pick those topics. I'm like, I know the answer to that one.
1: <laughs> I, you, you know, uh, we've had a lot of fun over the last couple months watching it. And, you know, you always ask yourself, well, how would you do on it? And I just know I would not make Final Jeopardy at all. And I would have a big negative number, but boy, it would be fun to try.
0: And and darn aren't you good in your living room, right? That's that's when we're always good.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So I always ask all of my guests the same two questions and I gave you a bit of a heads up on this and I'm kind of I'm interested to hear what you have to say. So the the first question is, what is the last podcast you listen to and or your favorite podcast?
1: Well, my my very last podcast I listened to uh, was uh, Freakonomics Radio, which is hosted by Stephen Dubner. This is uh, he and his uh, colleague, Stephen Levitt. They were the original authors of it, was the original Freakonomics book. It was another book called How to Rob a Bank, Best Time to Rob a Bank. And uh, they do a real deep dive into all sorts of different categories everything from, you know, why is there only. You know, one brand of ketchup versus all these different brands of mustard versus you know the 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 motivation of real estate agents on trying to close and then the compensation model. Uh, but he's posted a, he's posted a podcast for a while, so I, you know he does deep dives into things, so those are fascinating. My uh, my go-to podcasts, you know, I typically listen to the Daily by the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Bloomberg has a a talking tax pod that's you know pretty U.S. focused that helps me. Uh, I, I've gotten into it over the last couple years just as I'm commuting more. We, we moved our office from, from Richmond to downtown, and so that's what I've tried to do. Uh, there's a couple other ones I discovered as, a, uh, as an entertainment one. Alec Baldwin hosts something called Here's the Thing, and he's done it for probably 10 years or so. And he tries to kind of focus on music and entertainment and, uh, you know, the arts business. But he'll also do some deep dives with with guests into, you know, New York politics or New York transit or, you know, and even one of his ones recently, uh, he hosted Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks. And, um, you know, just a fascinating interviewer.
0: I did not know Alec Baldwin had a podcast. You know, there you go.
1: He, he pretty much has a little bit of everything. Um, he just is a kind of guy that doesn't sit still. And, and he has done it for public radio in New York for about a dozen years. I, I can't remember how I discovered it, but uh, he has some fascinating guests.
0: Well, you didn't disappoint Stephen. I knew you'd have some good podcasts and and I mean, who knew that we would dive down how to rob a bank or the best time to rob a bank? I mean that this podcast just got way more interesting. <laughs> okay, yeah. here's my other question, and this is the one you said that was slightly more challenging for you. Um, what is the emoji you use most often when texting
1: <laughs> so i'm I'm proud to admit I do text our our golf group has a whatsapp that we we put stuff in all the time, so Uh, But the use of emojis, you know, until you came to me and said, these are the questions I ask, I'm not sure I ever used them. I mean, sure, I used a red heart with my wife a lot. Oh, that's
0: nice, Stephen. That's good.
1: Yeah, I think everyone does that. But the two I've used recently uh, with our golf group as we're all kind of trying out new clubs and playing a lot of golf this summer with COVID. Uh, we, we borrowed from Phil Mickelson, who's been really big on social media the last couple of years. And he has this phrase about hitting the ball a long way. He just calls it hitting bombs. And so there's a little bomb emoji that we'll always put back and forth in there. So that's one, but it's, it's uh The other one is just that that glass of wine, that glass of red wine that just kind of answers a lot of different things in in a lot of different contexts. And sometimes you don't even have to put any words about it. You just put a glass of wine and and people know what's going on.
0: It's true. Hey, you can have whole conversations with just emojis sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: yeah. uh, our, our daughters use that with us from time to time. And I'm just, you know, there's cats and there's little things of poop and all that. And I think, okay, well, I, I, I get what you're saying. But yeah, no, the abbreviations are hard. The emojis are a little easier.
0: <laughs> Well, I I really appreciate your answers. Those were good answers. (laughs) So, I mean, you grew up in Saskatchewan, we've established that. So, you know, it gets really cold. And as I'm, as I'm recording this today, I mean, we're recording this in December of 2020 and we're entering into our first deep freeze. So like I plugged my car in the last two nights, which is always a sad moment when you have to, to dig out the plug in for your car. So that's, that's where I'm at right now. I remember
1: those days that, uh, the And I think they called it Zed lot at U of S or the, uh, when I lived yes. in the, resi- the, uh, uh, <laughs> the residence was on, I'm trying to remember the street. Uh, it's yeah, in the we, middle of nowhere. In
0: yeah. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. Right. That's where it is. And so, I, I mean, we're in that phase and this is typically when a lot of Saskatchewan people Move to a warmer location. We migrate with the birds. And so I feel like usually half of Saskatchewan's in Palm Springs and in Phoenix um, in December and January. I'm not currently that person. I aspire to be that person. I want to be the person that's in Palm Springs for half the year. But I think in light of a lot of the restrictions that happened during the pandemic, a lot of people were questioning whether they were going to go south this year. And a lot of them own properties down there. And so what do they do And so you and I had a bit of a conversation about that, and we decided that that might be a fun topic for today's podcast, and and also just generally to discuss some of the U.S.-Canadian cross-border issues um, that are impacting all of us in light of the new government that's going to be coming in in the U.S. and and in light of COVID and the pandemic. So we're going to try to talk about three key topics. And if we have a little bit more time, we're going to jump into a couple extra topics. So our main topics are, you know, what are the general rules? So if we remove COVID, if we remove the pandemic, what are the general rules for when a Canadian owns property in the U.S.? And then what things should you be keeping in mind if you decide not to travel to your U.S. property this year? You know, what if you rent it? What if you sell it? And then the third topic being what happens to the U.S. property when you die? So we'll kind of maybe start with those topics and and see, see where we go from there. So how about we dive into topic one in terms of what are the general rules for when a Canadian owns property in the U.S.?
1: sure no happy to help we we get this question often from our clients who approach us and i mean ideally we want to talk to people before they've purchased that property because one of the biggest questions people will have is you know i how do i own this property and and there's a whole bunch of different solutions and a bunch of different answers depending on what that individual's needs are And, and it'll depend on what they want to use the property for whether it's uh for commercial or rental purposes, whether it's uh, kind of the dream vacation home where they want to spend four or five months of the year in the U.S. and, and never rent it out. Uh, it depends on how long they want to own it for, whether this is something that's got a 5-10 year life cycle or it's it's such a incredible property that they want their children and their grandchildren to, to continue to own it. Uh, you look at the value of the property, you look at whether it's going to be Leveraged, uh, or, or or there's some sort of mortgage against it, um, and, and you look at the the individual, the family's net worth, and you kind of put all these things together, and you can get a bunch of different solutions. and, and what you're focusing on is is probably just as important as what are the income tax implications, but also uh, what are the the death or estate tax implications, and, and that's something we'll talk about a little later in the podcast. But you know, people ask me, well, how do I own the property? Well. Depending on those circumstances, you may want to own it personally. You may want to own it jointly with your spouse. Perhaps, you know, we use some sort of entity to hold the property. It could be a a limited partnership or a trust. Uh, There's a whole host of ways you can approach to own the property.
0: And are there any sort of thresholds in terms of property values that people can keep in mind? Because I guess you know, we always think about ourselves, perhaps when we're having these conversations. And so like my parents own a Hilton property in Las Vegas, and it's worth about 30,000. So it's not a a large value property. Is that a very different discussion than if someone is buying a half a million dollar property in Phoenix?
1: Well, I I think it is. And I think that's one of your first starting points is, you, you know, you don't want to have the solution be more expensive than the problem. And in your example, if someone owns a a timeshare, for example, that's worth $30,000, or perhaps it's a place in a smaller area that's $100,000 $150,000. And yes, they might be subject to estate tax, and we'll talk about that later. And, and maybe the estate tax exposure is fifty sixty thousand dollars $60,000. However, uh, if, if, if one is only subject to estate tax by owning the property when, it, when they pass away, if they plan to sell the property before they die, well, then there's no exposure. But if the, expo- the exposure to estate tax is so low that it's not really that relevant in the whole in the whole uh, state, then simplicity is often preferred versus some sort of complex strategy.
0: And so, if you're a Canadian and you're you're going down to the U.S. on an annual basis, can you sort of summarize for us? what the rules are, because I know that we're all subject to certain rules, certain counting rules. And my understanding is that now the border agents are connected with Canada Revenue Agency. And so there's this, at least this is the rumor I've heard that now there's a a bit of accounting that's happening that someone else is paying attention to. Are you able to speak to that a little bit?
1: So I can. So this this is regardless of whether you own a property or not in the U S and this is assuming that the individual is a Canadian citizen. They're not a U.S. citizen. They don't have a green card. And if they're traveling frequently to the U.S., you know, one of the things they may trip over is they may become a U.S. resident for U.S. tax purposes if they spend too much time in the United States. And so while Canada looks at residency as more of a subjective test, we look at where's your family, where's your home, where's your job, you know, where do you conduct your daily life, the U.S. is much more objective. When it looks at residency, it, as I said, if you're a U.S. citizen, you're taxing on worldwide income. If you're a, a green card holder or a permanent resident, you know, generally a green card, then you're subject to U.S. tax and worldwide income. If you spend a certain number of days in the U.S. over the last three years and you meet this weighted average test, also known as the substantial presence test, then you can be considered under U.S. law a, a resident of the U.S. for income tax purposes.
0: And so what happens if you end up falling into that category? What's the consequence?
1: Sure. So so in general terms, the, the test looks at your last three years, and it says if you spent more than 183 days in this three-year period, and it's, it's a bit of a weighted average, it takes the days you spend in the current year plus one-third of the days in the prior year plus one-sixth of the days in the second prior year. And if that total adds up to 183 days or more in the U.S., then you're sub. Then, then if you do nothing else, you're considered a U.S. resident for income tax purposes. However, you're also considered a Canadian resident for a lot of people because you know Canadians uh, have their home here, their family here, their lives here, they file their tax returns here. So now you're a resident in two places. So if you can go to the United States and represent to them that you have a closer connection to Canada versus the United States, then you aren't subject to U.S. federal income tax and enrollment income. You're not required to file annual U.S. tax returns. All you're required to do is, is send notification to the IRS annually that you have this closer connection to Canada. You're not a resident of the United States. It's about a two-page checklist. It's got a specific form number on it. It's called IRS Form 8840. And, and that form in particular has no calculations on it. It's, it's more of a checklist. And as long as you file that on an annual basis you wouldn't be subject to U.S. tax and your worldwide income.
0: So this is why it's a great idea to phone someone like you before you start making these tracks down to the U.S. or purchasing property. Because these are some really basic tools that you can keep in the back of your brain so that you know before you violated the rule. Because <laughs> it's not even just about the tax consequences. I mean, there's, there's lots of consequences to to not following this dating or this, this timing rule. And so it's just most important to be aware of it going into it.
1: Well, and that's what I tell people, is that with, with the way the uh, Canada and U.S. have coordinated uh, border services, you know, every, every checkpoint now, uh, your passport scanned. And so it's not very difficult for anyone who's got your passport information, uh, a government agent, an IRS auditor, for example, to look up how many days you spent in the United States in, in the last few years. I and mean, it was about starting in 2014 that that data became readily available. And so I tell people, just count your days in the U.S., you know, monitor how much time you're spending there. And that's days for any purpose. If, if you live on the West Coast here and you're, you're in Vancouver and you decide to go play golf for the afternoon at Bellingham Golf Club, um, that's in Washington state. That's a day in the U S even though, you know, you're only there for say four or five hours. If you go across the line for, for a shopping afternoon, you're driving from I'm trying to think of my, my history, you're going from Regina and you're going to Minot for, for shopping and coming back. Um, you know, those are cons- that's are considered a day if You stay overnight. That's two days.
0: And, and it's very important to keep in mind what you said earlier. That's very different than if you have a green card for the U.S. or if you are you know going down there for school and you have specific documentation to be down there. We're really looking at those people that are going down for fun, for visiting, um, because they've got properties down there or because they're vacationing down there. That's really the focus of this timing.
1: Well, well it, it is. And, and there are certain exceptions. So, for example... You know, you're, you're counting your days for most purposes, but if you've got uh, uh, certain exemptions, for example, your, your day of a, of a university student, uh, you know, in general terms, that university student wouldn't count the days studying in the U.S. For, for residency purposes. And so they generally wouldn't be a U.S. resident. But for a lot of people who are, you know, that typical snowbird that's leaving in November, coming back in April. They get fairly close to those 183-day uh, t- uh, tests, and they got to be careful watching their days. It, you can go over 183 days. That's not uh, going to make all of a sudden make you subject to U.S. federal income tax. What you then do, though, is you would have to file a U.S. income tax return, disclosing your, uh, your worldwide assets, your worldwide income. You could make a claim under the tax treaty not to pay any U.S. federal tax on your Canadian source income. However, if you go over 183 days in any calendar year, now you're filing a full-blown U.S. federal tax return disclosing all sorts of things you'd never have to before, your interests in Canadian corporations and family trusts and Canadian bank accounts. And so you know, for a lot of people, that's why we tell them that, that if you're going to spend the time in the U.S., just be careful on the total number of days you're spending in any particular
0: Absolutely, because that sounds like it gets complicated fast.
1: <laughs> well it would and it's 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 not I'm gonna it's not a very value added return when you're producing a couple hundred pages of information with no tax liability. I mean it's it's just something that's unnecessary if you can, you know, monitor the days you're spending in the US. Make Absolutely. sure you're, you're in compliance.
0: Absolutely. And so then if we have a situation where someone has purchased a vacation home in the U.S. and this year they said, you know what, we're not going to go down. We're, we're concerned about the pandemic. We're concerned about crossing the border. And they decide they're going to rent out the property. Uh, what, are, what are some of the things that they need to keep in mind? They're either going to rent it or they're going to sell it or they're not going to use it at all. What are some facts that they should be um, keeping top of mind?
1: sure so f- we're seeing this this fall for a lot of people who want want to hang on to their property but no they can't cross they can't easily cross the border or don't want to be in the united states and so for the first time ever they're renting the property out now if if you've never had to if you've never used your us property as uh, as a rental property or as a business in, in any way You've probably never filed a U.S. federal income tax return or a state return. You've probably never had to because you never had any income from that property. Just by owning a property doesn't mean you have to file annual U.S. tax returns. You have to have some income from it to necessitate the filing. Once you start renting the property out, now from a U.S. perspective, you you can you have a couple of choices. You can pay U.S. federal and state income tax on the gross amount, or you can choose to file. A tax return every year, claim expenses, everything that we normally do on rental properties, from mortgage interest to property taxes to condo fees to repairs and maintenance. You can deduct those. Pay U.S. federal and state tax on the net income, but it does require you to file an annual U.S. income tax return every year.
0: And do you also have to file that income or report that income on your Canadian tax return as well?
1: Well, that's right. So as a Canadian resident, you're subject to income tax and your worldwide income. So now you've got income and expenses coming from another jurisdiction. And so your Canadian return will include the net income on the property. Uh, To the extent you pay any U.S. federal or state income tax, you'd get what's called a foreign tax credit in Canada. So you'd reduce your Canadian tax dollar for dollar. So you're not paying tax twice on the same income. You may have some other reporting requirements in Canada. Canada wants to know when Canadians invest in non Canadian assets. And to the extent that this property's cost is over $100,000. Canada has some separate form uh, some separate reporting. The form is actually called T form T1135 and Canada wants to know other details on the cost and your annual income.
0: And so it's it's very important to be aware of these rules because there can be penalties that can apply if you don't um, prepare or file the necessary forms and and again, one of the things that you noted is the value of the property becomes relevant here. So this is why if you're in the process of purchasing a property in the States um, or if you have a property right now, never hurts to consult an advisor and just say, here's what I have. Here's what it's worth. Here's what I'm using it for. What do I need to keep in mind? Where do I need to be filing my returns? Because you want to keep it as simple as possible, but clearly it depends. Um, It depends a lot on the different facts of the situation as to whether you have to file, whether there's a tax liability, um, and, and which country you're filing in. And maybe just to kind of back things up a little bit, we've talked a little bit about the basis for taxation in Canada, being the concept that Canada taxes you On your worldwide income, and of course in Canada we have provincial tax and we have federal tax, but the U.S. is a little bit different. I mean, we've got the state tax plus we have the federal tax, but it's not taxing necessarily based on your worldwide income. Are you able to address that a little bit, sort of the differences in taxation between the two countries?
1: Well, absolutely. So the, the concept then from a, for a Canadian resident, Canadian citizen, again, not a U.S. citizen, not a U.S. green card holder, is that from a U.S. perspective, they're only subject to U.S. federal and state income tax to the, to the extent that they have U.S. source income. So, all of their, so just because they have a rental property in the U.S. doesn't all of a sudden drag their worldwide income into the United States tax system. They're only subject as a non-resident alien to the U.S., to U.S. real estate tax on that particular U.S. source property. So things like rental income, uh, if they were working in the United States and they got paid U.S. source wages and they were physically working there, that would be taxed in the United States. You know, those are the things that you would typically see on a non-resident aliens tax return in the United States. It wouldn't be their worldwide income.
0: Very, thank you very much. I just think that's helpful for people to understand that framework and because it is a bit of a difference between the two countries. So we talked a little bit about death, um, and, and you have mentioned or alluded to earlier that you would talk about what happens to a U.S.-owned property if someone dies. I wonder if you can address some of the estate tax rules.
1: Sure. It's The, the concept's quite different. In the United States compared to Canada. So so the, the concept on, on taxation on death in Canada is that to the extent that we have unrealized gains or appreciation on our assets, or you know, tax-deferred assets, things like RSPs, that if they don't transfer over to our spouse, if they go into the estate and say like the children inherit them, or maybe this money goes to charity then it's the appreciation, it's the unrealized gains, it's the deferred accounts that are subject to Canadian income tax. The U.S. concept is quite a bit different. The U.S. concept is a taxation on the value of the property you own at death, regardless of whether it's appreciated in value or not. And so that often comes as a surprise to Canadians when they buy U.S. real property that, again, take the example of someone who, bought a property in Hawaii for a million dollars, if they do no planning at all and they own it personally, then the next day afterwards, if they passed away owning that property and if they were high net worth individual, they would be subject to an estate tax at a rate approaching 40%. So a million dollars times 40%, that's a $400,000 US federal estate or death tax exposure by owning the property for less than a day.
0: And, and so very, very different consequence than if they owned that property in Canada and died, because as of right now, at least we do not have a form of estate tax or sort of a death tax in Canada. We simply have that. I call it the biggest yard sale of your life. It's, it's like the, the minute before you die, everything you own gets you know, metaphorically sold, um, and if, if there's an increase in value, you're taxed on that. But if we have our, our Hawaii property example, if you own that property, for example, in Vancouver and you bought it for a million dollars and the next day you died and it was still worth a million dollars. Well, there's no there's no gain. There was no increase in value in that property. There's nothing to be taxed on in Canada. But the same property as you've indicated in Hawaii, um, if it's worth a million dollars and you die the next day, you're going to be taxed on approximately 40% of that. And that doesn't matter if the property didn't increase in value. So it's a very different way to look at property ownership. And you have to give some consideration to how you're going to pay for that when you die.
1: Well, that's true. And, and when we talk to people about this, you, you get all sorts of different reactions and all of them are correct in that own person's circumstance. And some people will look at it and say, you know, this isn't my problem. This is my heirs, my beneficiaries problem. There's enough liquid assets in the estate to pay for this. And, you know, they're gonna have to deal with that. So I can understand that as an approach, as long as they understand and, and say, here's my exposure, they can make that decision. Others would say, you know, I, I can, Provide for the liability uh, by getting a life insurance policy, a term insurance policy. And, you know, that makes some sense. If, if that works for that family, you know, you'll continue to pay premiums on that. And as, as you get older, those premiums escalate. And as the property grows in value or if the estate laws change and, and President-elect Biden is proposing that, that you may have to get more life insurance. Um, there are other solutions as well. If if people are looking at it and saying, well, I don't want to be exposed to that, in my example, that $400,000 uh, liability, they can hold the property not personally, but they can choose other entities. They could choose uh, anything from a Canadian limited partnership to a Canadian trust to even a Canadian corporation. And, and, and those entities have their, their advantages and disadvantages. It's a more complex structure but it can provide uh, protection and, and elimination of the estate tax liability.
0: And I, I think that goes back to something you said earlier that you really want to make sure that whatever your solution is, it matches the actual complexity of the property itself. So you're not going to go through this level of complex planning for a $30,000 vacation property. Um, but for a million dollar property in Hawaii, yeah, maybe maybe you want to do some thinking about this. <laughs> and so I think it, it goes back to the importance of contacting the advisor before you sign the real estate papers. And there's been so many times where I find in particular in, in the the colder months that I get a call from a client and they've already bought the property. And so then they phone me and they say, so I just bought this property. How do you think I should own it? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, you could have called me two days ago. That would have been helpful. So I think the key is, is to, to make that call and to get that advice before you do something. And if you haven't, and now you have some property, there's still a lot of value in getting that advice now to find out, well, what are your options and what's your current situation? But yeah, it's, it's, we can always do so much more if we have the opportunity to do something before you've signed on the dotted line.
1: (laughs) Well, I I think that's very true. You you know, oftentimes we will speak with clients who are, are looking or they're about to close on something. And that's, That's good timing. I mean, spending an hour, two and a half, kind of going through all the different scenarios and asking questions about what their situation is. You know, you'll come to an answer. People say, well, what's the magic, what's the bullet, what's the magic answer? And I say, well, there isn't no one answer for this. It really depends on your set of facts and circumstances and your plans for the property and the value of the property. You up all these things together and and there will be a solution. Uh, But yeah, doing it in advance always helps. After the fact, it's a little more challenging. It can still be done.
0: Well, and I think it's also important to remember that tax is not the only consideration. And I say this a lot when I'm, when I'm chatting with clients is that at the end of the day, somebody might decide that the tax consequence of owning a property a certain way they're prepared to take that consequence because they want simplicity. And so those soft issues or those other non-tax issues become more important to them. And that's okay. And I think our job as tax advisors is just to make sure that you understand what the consequences are. And once you understand that, if you choose to accept them, that's okay. You know, no judgment from us. We don't always have to do something in the most tax effective way.
1: I think you're right. I think the biggest thing is for any client is to understand, uh, The advantages, the disadvantages to understand what it means in their situation, you know, not to rely on what they've read on the Internet, not to rely on what their cousin told them about owning it in certain entities, because that may great be for their circumstances, but it might be an absolute disaster for their own circumstances. But to get that kind of professional help.
0: Well, and I think this is maybe an, a bit of an interesting segue into some of these extra topics that you and I were thinking of talking about. And, and one of them is, I mean, we've talked about owning property in the U.S. and some of the, some of the unique issues that people are facing this year because of COVID. But that's not the only cross-border tax issue that people have been facing this year. So are you able to provide a bit of an update on on sort of what are the, the hot-button things that have been happening from a cross-border tax perspective because of the pandemic?
1: Sure. I'm happy to answer that. I do want to leave time for, for one of my uh, stories on selling property. We can come back to that. But, uh, you know, one of the things that a lot of people are facing is as you know, the news broke across North America and Europe in March, and people were were either set in place, or people had to come back home, or travel to their home country. You know, a, you know, many people continued to work for their employer, but in a very different jurisdiction. And so now, you know, the open question is: Well, who gets to tax that income? You know, in, from an employee's perspective or a consultant's perspective, you're You're now conducting your work and performing your services in a in a different country or a different state, you know, who's got taxing rights over that? And you know, from an employer's perspective or from a corporation's perspective, when more senior people get moved around the globe, you know, the open question now is: well, if if they're conducting senior level services and if they're executing contracts, you know, does that corporation they're working for, do they all of a sudden have a permanent establishment or you know, incidents to pay corporate income tax in that country where that individual's work.
0: That's a very great point, because I think everyone was in a bit of a panic when all of this started. And so you just kind of went to where you had to go and assumed that all of that stuff was going to stay the same. So definitely an interesting consideration. You're not working where you're normally working, or in the same country that you were normally working in. How does that impact? I was reading something, um, even from like a state tax perspective in the U.S. about the NBA and how when they move the bubble to Florida, then if you know, if, if in the NBA, if if you won and you got winnings, are you taxed in Florida or are you taxed in your home state? And sort of the different implications of that in this very unique time. So. Uh, very good point.
1: Well, yeah, the taxation of athletes is always kind of a fascinating one. And e- even some of the simple things, um, for example, you know, recently the San Francisco 49ers uh, had to relocate their two, their last two or three home games from Santa Clara, where their stadium is, to Arizona. Uh, health considerations and, and public uh, ordinances didn't allow them to practice or play in Santa Clara anymore. So the team's been practicing in Arizona, playing in Arizona for a month. And so a couple of players who aren't residents of California now pay state tax at Arizona rates, which is about 5%, can be about a third of what California rates are if they played those games in San Francisco. And so there's a significant uh, savings for the player. But also a significant drain on the California tax coffers because they're getting zero tax on something they would have got kind of thirteen you know, percent rate on had the games been held there.
0: It's really fascinating, um, and and it's curious because I think it makes us a lot more global than we used to be. Um, the thought that we could all be moving around and working and living in different places suddenly the different tax rates are are having a whole new meaning than they were before. Well, I really want to hear this story now about selling property in the U.S. before we move to our last topic. You, you've you built this up, so please, <laughs> yeah, please share. I'm, I'm
1: hoping I won't disappoint, sure. What, what we're seeing a lot now is we're seeing clients who have had their properties in Arizona and California, and they just they can't get to them this fall. They don't want a quarantine coming back and forth. They... they At the same time as thinking that they're not going to use them as much anymore and don't want to be down there, uh, it's a hot market in places like Palm Springs and Phoenix. Because uh, at the same time as Canadians are trying to sell, there's a whole host of American families that are leaving Los Angeles and leaving San Francisco, these high cost uh, cities, because they can continue to work wherever they are. And they don't need to be in the high priced places, so they're coming to Palm Springs and they're coming to Phoenix. So it's kind of been a perfect storm of a whole group of sellers matched with a whole group of buyers. And so, you know, for example, in Phoenix this spring, where the normal inventory of of properties for sale might be in the 50 to 55,000 range, there was a point in May and June where it was 8,000. It was a quarter of what it normally is. And so properties were selling very quickly. So one of the things, one of the Processes that you go through when you sell U.S. real property uh, is title transfer, and, and title transfer is it's a bit different in the U.S. There's a physical there's a deed that you go through and it needs to be executed. And in general terms, it's a U.S. notary who's the one that that views the title transfers and signs on it to make it valid to to ensure that uh, title transfer is done properly. Now U.S. notary services are very specific in that they're to be conducted only in the United States. A U.S. notary can't perform their services outside of the United States. And so normally when a Canadian would sell property, they'd be physically in the United States, they'd go to the notary's office, they'd get it signed. Well, it's a challenge now because Canadians don't wanna to have to quarantine and they can't travel easy to the United States. Now, usually in that case, you'd go to the U.S. consulate office in your city and there's a half a dozen of those across, uh, four or five of those across Canada. However, in general terms, the consulate offices in Calgary and Vancouver are closed and aren't offering uh, notary services. So some people have said, well, I'll I'll try a Canadian notary. Well, the problem with using a Canadian notary is that it's it's not an accepted form for for title transfer. It's got to be a U.S. notary that views it. And, you know, if you get into the complications of the Hague Convention and everything else, the Canadian notary services don't qualify. So now you're left with a Canadian trying to sell their property. Trying to find a U.S. notary can't go to the U.S. to to get it done. Um, You can try doing it remotely. There's some remote online notaries that work and there's certain states that allow that. But in particular, California at the time in the fall still didn't allow that. So now you're kind of stuck. You're about to sell your property and you're either faced with traveling to the U.S. somehow and then doing this half an hour service and flying back in quarantine for two weeks or what a lot of people have done in the Lower Mainland is they have contacted a Bellingham-based notary. There's a couple of them that do this. And if you understand the geography of Vancouver, we're, you know, we're 10, 20 miles from uh, the border. And so if you just drive you know straight out of downtown through Richmond down through, through Surrey, you'll hit the border. And the border isn't uh, a big walled uh, fence. There's no geographic barriers. It's a road with a ditch. And... There's a park called Peace Arch Park, and it's got a Canadian entrance and it's got a U.S. entrance. And by agreement from the 1850s, both countries allowed equal access to this park. It's considered both, as I understand, it's considered both Canada and the U.S. There's no border on either side. And what people will often do is they'll go to the park uh, without having to cross the border. It's observed by the RCMP. Uh, border officials are there, watch, and make sure things don't uh, go offside. In June, the Canadian government closed the Canadian side of the park, but the U.S. side of the park was left open by U.S. authorities. And so, what families are doing is they're connecting in this park to see each other, without having to cross the border, and without having to quarantine. Now, Canada has said later that well, you should be quarantining because you you. You, you went in, you had contact with U.S. people, but there's some, some gray area because you haven't really left Canada, apparently. So uh, what this these two entrepreneurial U.S. aspirators have done is they've held out their services and said to Canadians, here's what we'll do. We'll drive up from Bellingham to the border. It's about 20-minute drive. We're going to sit on this park bench right here, and they take a photo of it, and they put the park bench up. You're going to, and so we're still in the United States. So from the U.S. notary's perspective, they haven't left the United States. They can deliver their services. You as the Canadian, you park your car on the the Canadian side of the ditch, if you will. It's a little ditch. You jump over the ditch. You sit at the park bench. You hand them their papers. You do everything else. Five minutes later, you jump back over the ditch. And the quarantining is a little bit uh, gray, but most people aren't quarantining when they leave. And you get your new U.S. notary services done.
0: Wow. That is a good story. I was not aware of that park. That is very interesting.
1: Well, and, and what families have been doing, I've been reading more and more about this, is uh, they're meeting their U.S. family in this park, but they're traveling great distances. There was a great story where as a family, I think in Calgary, that flew to Vancouver, you know, rented a car, drove to the park. And there was a fa- their, their parents were in Los Angeles. Their parents you know, flew to Seattle, rented a car, drove about two hours up to the park. Met in the park for a couple hours and then went back on their ways. And, and you know, this is what people are trying to do to kind of make the best of this of this situation. And, um, you know, it's 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 a it's one of these holes, these loopholes that this these entrepreneurial U.S. notaries have done a fantastic job for Canadians that now prevent them from having to travel the U.S. and having to quarantine or taking the risk that a remote online notary might not work.
0: That is fascinating. I'm really glad you shared that story because I was not aware of that at all. And and I feel like the the rules in the U.S. are, I mean, well, the rules in Canada are confusing right now too. But the rules in the U.S. are are changing regularly. And and so one of the things you had said you were going to comment on is, uh, I mean, we're recording this in December, and so we we do have confirmation that Biden will be the next president of the United States. And what changes that we can anticipate that might sort of trickle their way up and impact Canadians in light of this um, change in administration that's going to be happening in the U.S.
1: Sure. So it's important to understand kind of the U.S. system because, you know, Biden has uh, proposed changes to tax law and they they are somewhat significant uh, in that. And I'll go through those in a minute. Uh, But there's a lot of steps that the Democrats are going to have to go through to get any of these changes confirmed. Your, your very first step is the two Senate races that are going to uh, occur in Georgia the first week of January. And those two Senate seats are really important because at this point, if the Democrats aren't successful and can't get 50 or more seats, they, they won't have control of the Senate and it'd be very difficult to pass any tax legislation. I think even if the Democrats get one or two of those seats, and have you know either fifty or fifty one? It's it's still these tax law changes still have to go to the most conservative democratic voter to get their support. So I think that's one of the changes uh, you know Biden faces. You know if he's if he's successful at any of his proposals, there are a couple though that would be uh, significant for Canadians. You know one is the change in the estate or death tax rules. Right now there's a, a lifetime exemption uh, that applies to Americans. And right now it's about $11.5 million U.S. of your estate. And, and what that means is that if you pass away and if you're a U.S. citizen or U.S. domicile, generally you know, living in the United States, the first $11.5 million of your estate is not subject to estate tax. Now, for a Canadian, they don't get the full $11 million because they're not a U.S. domicile, they're not a U.S. citizen. They get a prorated amount of that against their US real property interest. So if their net worth themselves is less than eleven and a half million US, in general terms, they wouldn't worry about the US estate or death taxes. In 2026, that estate tax go that exemption goes from eleven point four million to six million just under law. Biden's proposing to reduce that even further down to what it was at at the 2009 levels was somewhere between three to three and a half million. So there's a significant reduction of the estate tax exemption, which is going to put far more Canadians at exposure to us estate tax on their us properties or their us assets than they didn't have before. That's what's one of the first changes.
0: Very interesting. And I think one that, that a lot of people aren't paying attention to as much as perhaps they should be. <laughs>
1: Well, we, we see some people that are trying to do some some planning and, and look at structures on how to hold properties. I I think it's it's still you know up in the air whether that can't change gets passed. You know, the other change Biden's proposing from a corporate perspective is to increase federal corporate tax rates from the the rate of twenty-one percent, which was lowered as part of the Trump tax changes back in twenty seventeen, to increase it to twenty-eight percent. And so, you know, from a Canadian perspective where you know the U.S. rates are somewhat on par with Canada, if not a little lower, by increasing the U.S. corporate rate to twenty-eight percent, that would uh, you know make Canada a little more competitive on, on the kind of the global scale. So you know that would be a significant change if that happened.
0: Very interesting. And I think something that we're going to have to keep an eye out for. And of course, by the time this episode is released, who knows what extra changes that there will be. There's there's always something in the mix there in the U.S. and in terms of how they're, they're operating. And I feel like the estate tax regime is the one that, that I feel has had so much volatility. In the few years that I've been practicing, it seems like there's always a change happening in that area.
1: I, I don't think the two parties in the U.S. can ever can uh, I kind of get a set on, on what it should be? You, you get um, Republicans who have tried to abolish it over the years. And even when they've had control of the House and the Senate, and the presidency, they still, still weren't successful at doing that. You've got you know, Democrats who would like to see the exemptions lowered, the rates increased. Um, it's, it's always in a state of flux over the years. And there's some, some very interesting stories over the years where, you know, one of the solutions back 10 years ago, was for one particular year in 2010 there was no estate tax that was just there was a hole in the legislation when they made changes early in the in the uh, in the 2000s and in 2010 there was no estate tax at all but then reset in 2011 to uh you know the normal rates and the normal exemptions and so if someone passed away in 2010 there would be no estate tax And, and one of the more famous uh Families was the Steinbrenners, uh, own, owners of the New York Yankees, and George Steinbrenner passed away in 2010, and you know the billion-plus worth of his estate escaped probably 350 million of U.S. federal estate tax.
0: Wow, that's a loophole. I mean, not not a great not a great way to have to access that loophole, but timing, timing is everything. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it can be, no, absolutely.
0: Well, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Stephen. I really appreciate you sort of providing us with some background on some of these topics that I know are impacting a lot of us um, in Canada. And so I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much.
1: Amanda, I was uh, happy to join you and uh, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate that. Enjoyed it.
0: Well, that's all we have time for today, although I'm sure Stephen and I could keep talking about all of these exciting issues. You get two tax people on the phone and you just never know when we're going to (laughs) stop. I really hope that we gave you some food for thought or at least made you smile. Please see the show notes for any resource material that we reference throughout the episode and to find out more about today's guest. Thank you so much for listening. And if you are interested in reading or learning more, I invite you to subscribe to my weekly blog, The Tax Chick Blog. And if you have an idea for a future episode or a burning question you would like to see discussed, please send me an email at thetaxchickpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Please note that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode belong solely to the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the speaker's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. In addition, the information provided and discussed in this podcast episode is not legal advice. We encourage you to consult with your legal advisor for specific advice.